0: Welcome to the podcast for the Journal of the American Academy of Physician Assistance. Welcome to the JAPA Podcast for the August 2018 issue. In this podcast, we summarize select articles from this month's JAPA. I am your co-host, Christopher Maday, program Director at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center PA program in Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Hello, and I'm your co-host, Adrienne Banning, faculty member, research coordinator, EBM course director at the Drexel PA program in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This month, we feature CME articles on osteosarcoma and alopecia. And we're also gonna take a look at, look at, smartphones, and eye exams. See what we did there? And wrap up with some original research on PAs in urgent care, some of the first research on that. So that's pretty
0: cool. Yeah. So we've got bone tumors, hair loss, eyeballs, and urgent care. And that's...
1: It kind of sounds like a Halloween edition, but it's still summer.
0: Yes, it is. It is. We're almost there. It's almost there. I saw an ad the other day that just had me in stitches where it said, like, kids are back to school, cue the Christmas music.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say something about pumpkin spice. I saw pumpkin spice cereal the other day, and I was like, no, it's not time yet.
0: No, it's coming. It's definitely coming. So our question from the editor to kick off this episode is, tomorrow is a brand new holiday, National PA Appreciation Day, not to be confused with PA week. And it is a single 24-hour period in the middle of the week where every PA is forbidden to do work of any kind and must dedicate the time to recreation, relaxation, and fun. So, Adrian, how are you going to spend your 24-hour PA holiday?
1: Good question. I'm not struggling with this in any way. And I want to put in that Harrison put in a disclaimer PS. I know how you two are. Don't try to think of some creative way around the no work clause. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't have too hard of a time separating work and home. It's actually really important to me when those two things mix up. So, I I could do anything. I could go to the beach honestly if I think if I just had 24 hours off i i might just spend it at home i've been traveling a ton my dog is getting older so i think i'd honestly just like hang around the house um hang out and watch some some tv really just uh no agenda i think is my plan just wake up and see what happens but no laptop no phone
0: no plan so electronic free
1: i i do better that way yeah
0: oh yeah no not me not no, me. I know.
1: I just deleted Instagram, too, my only personal social media. <laughs> so now I'm just Twitter, and that's my pro social media. Oh. Feels good. How, how about you? Uh,
0: you know, I I, I I struggle with this because, you know, I've, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that having a clear distinction, um, you know, between home life and work life is very, very important. But the more that I've been researching it, the more I'm coming around to – Instead of work-life balance, more work-life integration, because it is such a big part of what I do and and sort of my ethos, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess, is the best way to, to phrase it. So, you know, even on the weekends, I get up and work on the podcast. I work on various social media postings for the week. I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff that I enjoy doing that is still technically work. Uh-huh. Um, so it's hard for me to really break that off because I'm like, you know what if I had 24 hours, I would totally like like right now just shove more work in. I would shove more work in because <laughs> I'm like I haven't done This PS a, was for you. It is it is <laughs> and I mean i haven't I haven't come out with a original podcast one for for my personal one in like almost two months just because I've had so much on my plate that I haven't been able to do it and you mm-hmm. know other things have been taken priority for that. So technically it's work but it's fun and I want to do it. But then I get around to the whole, you know what, if this is in the middle of the week and I, so this is how I kind of read this was my kids are at school and my wife is at work. So this is like a single, like just me kind of deal, because if it was uh, everybody had the day off and it was a national holiday and you know, the whole nine, then, you know, obviously it would be, you know, trying to schedule something with the wife and the kids and have a family day. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the weekends now are getting increasingly scheduled with other stuff for the family. And we just don't yeah. really have any downtime. As time. your kids get older. Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I certainly think <laughs> So, that Chris, if
1: we locked you in a closet by yourself for 24 hours, <laughs> basically is the only way to get you, like... Uh, chill
0: yeah well yeah and it'd have to be (laughs) electronic free because you know I've of course have all sorts of apps on my phone and my ipad just for that single purpose like trying to maximize my time wherever I'm at you know if I'm at the dentist with my kids and I'm sitting in the waiting room I've got my ipad out and I'm doing stuff to try to just be as efficient as possible that's Mm -hmm. that's my ultimate goal in life is to be as efficient as possible and it seems uh-huh. to be working. And so okay. you still didn't
1: answer the question.
0: It's because I don't know if I have an answer. <laughs> that's the that's the problem. Like I really don't. I I I don't know. You can't, can't well, do it. No, I I can't. Because there's this. It's not that there's not s- fun stuff to do. It's just that it's so ingrained in my brain. Do you
1: ever just? Do you ever just do nothing? Like, have you ever meditated?
0: no, I can't do that. I try. I, honestly, I did try. I had, the, I had the, I had the mindful mindfulness app or uh-huh, one minute meditation uh-huh. app. And I was like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to legit try this and I can't shut my brain off. Like, cause that's the whole purpose, right? The whole purpose is for you to kind of have a thought, own the thought and then let the thought go. Right. Right. Yeah. I can't let it go. Like, So I, I used
1: to be that way, but I've, I've really been able to change and you sleep. Okay.
0: Oh, I sleep like a rock. Like that's I mean that's I mean that's the thing It's the only like,
1: time your body's like thank god.
0: I mean, I put we put the kids to bed at 8:30 and the, and then you know my wife and I joke about this all the time is 8:30 hits, I go up, we kiss them goodnight, we say goodnight, we go downstairs, 15 minutes, I'm out. Like, there is there is no just sitting in bed waiting to mm-hmm. kind of slow down. It's like as soon oh. as my head hits the pillow, it is like, okay. okay, body says it's, you know, again, training my body to be efficient. If I say it is bedtime and I need to sleep, then the body's like, okay, there's no sense in wasting time laying in bed awake <laughs> because if you're awake, you should be doing work and doing other things. So if this is the time to sleep, you need to go to sleep. And it's like, snap off. Okay. And
1: well, Harrison, we just, we have to. This
0: is depower. what you signed up for, buddy. <laughs>
1: Uh, Chris, Chris can't. He won't. Nope, so, no, nope. sorry. That's it. All right. Well, there you go. All right, Chris. Be efficient. Tell us about the CME.
0: So, the, the CME. Just remember, this is a um, summary of the CME articles, and you have to read both of them to review the post test, and then take the online test at CME.AAPA.org and get at least seventy percent, and you will get one category one CME. So, listen enjoy, get the nuggets, and then don't forget to log on to get that CME. Right. So speaking of which, let's jump into osteosarcoma. So this was a review article by Emily Simpson, who was a PA student at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia, who now practices in urgent care medicine at Georgia Emergency Associates in Savannah and Heather L Brown who is an adjunct associate assistant professor at the PA program at Mercer. So the numbers of osteosarcoma. This is the most common primary bone tumor and the third most common cancer among children and adolescents behind lymphomas and brain cancers and encompasses 3 to 6% of all childhood cancers that you will see in clinical practice. There is a bimodal age distribution. We all remember osteosarcoma being much more of a of a child adolescent age but it does peak again after the age of 65 so don't forget about this in your patients who are over the age of 65 that this still can rear its ugly head there are only 800 new cases diagnosed annually in the u.s so it is not not very prevalent but it's still one of those devastating diseases that we have to know and be able to catch and the overall 10-year survival rate which was abysmal in the early 50s and 60s has now started to plateau at around 50% um, across the US and worldwide. So still not great, but we are making some strides. So how do the patients present? Typically, this is gonna be an adolescent patient who comes in with a several month history of bone pain that typically waxes and wanes, but it never really goes away. It's one of those nagging bone pains that just kind of sticks around and honestly, the presentation is, is so insidious that you don't think it's such a devastating disease, and it's so easy to blow off as a, as a uh, practicing PA. So you really need to keep this in the back of your mind of what if. We also see it in patients that have fractures after minimal trauma because these can have uh, lytic bone lesions that can affect the structural integrity of long bones. They can have uh, bone point tenderness on physical exam, And they can also have erythema and swelling with a palpable mass around where this lesion is growing on the bone. Location, it's most commonly on the appendicular bones, arms, legs, uh, but it's more common on the axial skeletons in adults. So in kids, you're thinking humerus, femurs, tibias, and in adults, you want to start thinking pelvis and spine. The diagnostic approach, so radiographs are going to be your go-to. It's easy to get. They're quick and easy. You're going to see the classic sunburst pattern on uh, x-ray. You can see some periosteal reaction and some lifting off the periosteum called Codman's triangle, and there is an ill-defined zone of transition between where the lesion is and where the healthy bone is, and that's one of the hallmarks of malignancy. Laboratory studies. Want to check a CBC, ALT, AST, ALP, BUN, BMP, all of the alphabets that go with this, Remember that ALP, your alkaline phosphatase, is secreted by bone, and this can be um, elevated in children and in adolescents because their epiphyseal plates are still open. So the authors reviewed a paper where they looked at the ALP to serum acid phosphate, or ACP, and that can help differentiate between what a normal elevated ALP looks like and what an elevated ALP in osteosarcoma looks like. The bone biopsy is the definitive test, Needle biopsy is about 90% sensitive, but a lot of labs and hospital systems prefer the excisional biopsy just because you get a better sample. And then after the diagnosis is made, an MRI of the entire limb is done in order for uh, surgical planning. You need to see what your plan of attack um, in treating this particular cancer is going to be. Most commonly, we do still use the TMN staging system, but there is a musculoskeletal tumor society system staging, That's three stages and two subcategories. Stage one is a low-grade tumor. Stage two is a high-grade tumor. Stage three is distant metastases or lymph node involvement. Uh, Most commonly, it's going to go to the lung. About 90% of metastases go to the lung. And then that's subdivided into A category, which is the original tissue compartment. It kind of stayed put. Or in B, if there's local extension of the disease around other compartments or tissues within that area. Management, it's a three-stage, three-tiered approach. These patients get neoadjuvant chemotherapy eight to 10 weeks prior to surgery. Then they do surgical resection. 80% of these patients undergo some limb-sparing procedure uh, so that they can have some um, parts of their limb left for prosthesis and, and other functions. And then there's adjuvant chemotherapy that is for approximately 12 to 29 weeks after surgery. So chemo before then surgery, then chemo after. 30 to 40 percent, unfortunately, will have a recurrence of their osteosarcoma, and these typically will appear within two to three years after treatment. Rarely does this ever come back after five years, so we kind of follow these patients very aggressively for five years because after that, the likelihood of it recurring is very, very low. If it does recur, Unfortunately, there is only a 23 to 29% five-year survival after that second recurrent, and limb amputation is typically the treatment of choice because they don't want to leave any residual disease around. So bad disease, you're not going to see it very commonly in clinical practice, but this is one of those zebras that you always want to keep in the back of your head uh, in Children, kids, or uh, adults over the age of 65 that are just coming in with nagging bone pain.
1: Good summary. Uh, I think it was. It, it sounds bleak, and then you were like, "It's not as bleak as it once was, but it's still pretty serious." And so, yeah that that bone pain just, I guess, do 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 diligence, right, and, and double check. Yep.
0: This is something on your differential. I have unfortunately caught two cases of osteosarcoma in the emergency room for kids coming to the emergency room with uh, nagging bone pain that their pediatrician just said was growing pains. Like literally the patient's parents came in and just said that the doc has just kept saying it was bone pain, growing pain. And, you know, of course in the ER, you just, you you get an x-ray and that's that. And I mean, just big old tumor on both bones and ended up having to ship them to children's. And it's just unfortunate because it's so easy to say, eh, it's just a random bone pain. probably
1: nothing. Exactly. And you want it to be nothing because it's a kid.
0: Right, right, right. So it's just you got to keep your eyes open.
1: Uh, Jeez. Well, that's why you got into medicine, right? Right. Okay. Uh, Another reason maybe you got into medicine is, well, the whole reason, right, to help people when they come to you. So not as serious as... Cancer of your bones, but definitely something that can affect your life. Our second CME article is about alopecia, so hair loss. Turns out the authors of this article bring up that alopecia can be due to high androgen index contraceptives. So if you're losing your hair, it might be your birth control. And Caitlin Y. Graves, uh, part of the research faculty, At Florida State University in Tallahassee, Benjamin J. Smith, he's the director of didactic education there, and Bridget C. Nuccio, she's an assistant professor there. They are the authors of this article. And I have not seen yet, Chris, do you think that you've seen it come through research faculty?
0: No, I know Um, a research faculty member that I work with fairly frequently on various podcasting, but I have not seen very many being broadcasted and advertised in the PA world.
1: I'm saying it here. I think this is the new wave. Yeah, I got to be appointed to be research coordinator. I don't think roles like that are all too common, but then I saw research faculty. Caitlin Y. Graves, if you're hearing this, shoot me an email, ASB35, at Drexel, <laughs> or send me a tweet at the Art of EBM. Um I'd like to hear from you. I might try and find you too. Connect. Okay, let's talk about... <laughs> Oh, you know what? We're going to talk about connections at the end of this and how one small tweet brought us to Stitcher instead of just iTunes for this podcast. That's right. Stay tuned to the end. There's going to be a shout-out. Okay, hair loss. So hair loss uh, and alopecia. We want hair in some places. We don't want hair in other places, and it has to be balanced. So when we're losing hair in places, we don't want to lose hair. That's a problem. This article is a really great summary of how the progestin and oral birth control – and androgen kind of causes alopecia. And so we're worried about gradual hair thinning in a patient using high androgen index contraceptives. And maybe they're not so common because the newer generations are lower androgen index, but still people are taking them. So this is gradual hair thinning in someone using high androgen index contraceptives in the absence of other causes. So if that's happening, it might be telling you that you're having an androgenic alopecia. The article goes a lot farther into different types of alopecia in hair growth patterns and stages. And really, if you know all those things, you can kind of figure out what's causing someone's hair loss and where it's interrupting the hair growth pattern. But specifically, we're gonna focus on the article talking about how to tell the different levels of androgen activity in birth control, how it can lead to hair loss, and um, what we can do about it. We're not really sure how common the problem is because of generally poor study methodology and studies being paid for by pharmaceutical industry. So that's bias. Um, whenever there's money involved, there's bias. You just can't get rid of it. <clears throat> so we don't know how common it is and maybe it's underreported, but if we're aware even that alopecia is caused by birth control, as well as decreased libido, acne, mood changes, weight gain, there are most mostly the effects of the progestin in the birth control if someone is having a side effect from their pill. And if you know about those things going in, just like if you're thinking about osteosarcoma, if someone complains of bone pain, right, it's just knowing one's half the battle. Thank you, GI Joe. And so if you know the different generations of progestin, then you can switch them around and make big improvements and save the patient distress, time and money. So here we go. The other thing is don't just take them off the pill. Oral contraception, really effective. They, they're they using it for a reason. It might not just be birth control. Oh. It might be in regulating some of those side effects that we talked about before that they had and they're using birth control to help with. Uh, it could be regulating cramps or other other anything else that goes along with the menstrual cycle. So, And to not get pregnant if the person doesn't want to get pregnant. So we need access. The answer isn't just take them off the pill, but let's try and find the right fit. So everyone gets the best benefit. You're not just jumping around willy-nilly. You wanna double check that any symptoms like alopecia aren't thyroid disease or PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Easy to check, right? there in primary care. You don't have to send them out. You wanna do CBC, TSH, ferritin, vitamin D, DHEAS, and testosterone levels. And then if they're all fine, let's think about the progestins. So the first through third generation progestins work on hair growth phases differently because some of them bind to androgen receptors. So it's, it's all a hormonal thing. Okay, so aside, outside the article, I needed a little refresher on this. Androgen receptors usually bind testosterone, but progesterone can bind instead, especially in higher doses like in the first generation birth control pills. So we're talking about binding to testosterone receptors and causing disturbances there. Progesterone can also bind, of course, to progesterone receptors and estrogen receptors. So there might be some effects on estrogen too. So time to pull out those pill packs, everyone, into your, wherever you keep them. Let's look at the type of progesterone in the pill packs. In the first generation, they're mostly S-strains, like norethesterone. And they have higher androgen indexes and more side effects because they lead to more testosterone metabolites. The second generation are norethisterone, and they have more androgen index um, than third generation. So first has the highest, then second generation, and then third generation is uh, desogestrel, norgestimate, and etonogestrel. And not all of those are available in the United States, so we're looking a lot at the norgestimate in the third generation, and they all have the lowest. And then finally, last but not least, there's the newest progestins, and that's chloramadonone acetate. That's not available in the U.S. Sorry, these are the ones that are not available in the U.S., the third generation are. And uh, drospirinone, they actually have mild anti-adrogenic activity. So... That there's what we are. Look and see what progestin is in the birth control the person's using. If it's a first generation, like an estrain or uh, norethisterone, then that has the highest androgen activity. Okay, so there's estrogen in combined pills, too. The person might be taking a progestin only birth control if they, for some reason, can't take estrogen but it's possible that they're taking a combined pill. Estrogen in a combined pill can increase hair growth. So think of hair growth in pregnancy where there's more estrogen or hair loss after menopause where there's less estrogen. Sometimes the estrogen can kind of combat the hair loss effects of the progestin, so that's good, and reduce the androgenic effect, especially in pills with those third-generation progestins and those with 30 micrograms of ethanol estradiol estrogen instead of those with less than 30 micrograms. So alopecia may be worse in progestin-only pills and get better with combination pills with third-generation progestins and 30 micrograms more of the estrogen. But caveat, of course, remember that pills that contain third-generation progestins or drospirinone may put patients at an increased risk for Uh, venous thromboembolism. So you might be switching them for hair loss, but then you still have to assess what's their DVT or embolic risk. The risk isn't huge. I think I remember reading that it's maybe like one or or two in one or 2,000, which would still be one in a thousand if I would have thought about that before I said it, but it's, it's not huge. Um, but it is a risk, uh, in those third generation progestins, uh, and birth control pills. So especially if the person's a smoker, the authors point out that you don't have to wait. If you're going to switch pills, you don't have to wait between switching them, but educate the patient on backup birth control, like condoms until the new form that you switch them to has had long enough to be effective. If the patient can't take estrogen, you want to get them on an estrogen pill, You think that it'll help their hair loss? Think about a copper IUD or less androgenic progestin-only contraceptives. So there's still alternatives. They can still have birth control. One of those options is the etonogestral implant. That's restricted in the U.S., though, and it needs special training, so you can't just go out and and do that whenever you want. You can also while you're switching things around and finding out what's going on, you can add on a topical steroid and or minoxidil. You can use them both at the same time. Um, but you still want to try and find the root of the problem and fix that. Otherwise, you're going to just be kind of putting a band-aid on the problem. So, think about hair loss as a possible side effect to birth control. And you in primary care, if you're in primary care, can at least begin the workup and management. You might be able to resolve it totally on your own. And you could really maybe greatly improve the quality of life of someone because hair loss is generally not something that anyone wants to deal with.
0: And it's not one of those that you typically think of with no. oral contraceptives. You're like right. This is what's so cool about this article is that I probably at some point had that in my brain when I learned about all of that. but. Sure. You know, now it's that you you think about it for one particular purpose, maybe two for, you know, Mm -hmm. regulation of cycles and other hormonal management. But you don't think about hair loss being a sequelae of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that may be a significant um, uh, contraindication to giving it to a patient. They just won't take it at that point. So then you're not having a good conversation about risks, benefits, and other issues that are coming with the medicine that you're prescribing. So as a good provider, you need to have your due diligence in making sure that you understand all of that.
1: Yeah, shared decision-making, because someone might be like, no, birth control makes me lose hair. And you're like, ah, oh, but maybe it's not all birth control, right, maybe you were just on the wrong one.
0: Right, right, so, or at least mm-hmm. opening up that line of communication to what else can we do. For sure. So I good know, article, well, good it. article. I, I agree. So the next one is smartphone imaging for the ophthalmic exam in primary care. Uh, Brought to
1: you by our technology addicted co-host.
0: That's right, <laughs> and 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 I I actually really enjoyed this because it's been something that I've been investigating over the last couple of years. So this was written um, at the time by Eric Bifolk, Andrew Fink, and Daniel Peterson. Who wait, were all Bifolk? Bifolk.
1: And he wrote about eye exams.
0: Yeah, apparently. Like
1: bifocals. Yeah. Isn't it, I really feel like some people's names help direct them. Eric, I wonder if you're working in, in eye care in some way.
0: He is practicing in ophthalmology See? in <laughs> Kernersville, North That's Carolina. fantastic.
1: I'm, we're so proud of you, Eric. Yes. Good job.
0: Um, and they were all students at the Wake Forest PA program. Um, oh, fantastic. Uh, Mr. Bifolk now uh, practices in ophthalmology. Mr. Fink. Practices in interventional radiology in Raleigh, and Mr. Peterson is in cardiothoracic surgery at Wake Forest. Uh, And this was also co authored with Tanya Gregory, who is the assistant professor and director of student services at the PA program at Wake Forest. So, a little background on this the Healthy People 2020 initiative is an initiative of just trying to get the global, or I guess not global, the U.S. population healthier as from a public health standpoint and one of those objectives revolves around vision preserving eyesight for as long as possible and preventing blindness the american academy of ophthalmology recommends a comprehensive eye exam by the age of 40 in patients with underlying eye disease currently or has other risk factors such as hypertension diabetes and whatnot now the fundoscopic exam um, Full disclosure and being open and honest with all of our listeners.
1: I love it. What's he going to say?
0: I hate it. I hate yeah. the fundus exam. It's hard. Exam. It's hard to do. Um, Without
1: and, being having someone dilated. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And trying right. to use the handheld um, uh, ophthalmoscopes at the bedside is even harder to do. It's a skill a that practice. I that I really feel like everybody needs to know, but I'll be honest, I've never been very good at it. I can see the pictures when they're perfect, um, dilated, and I can see all the pathology, then I know what I'm looking at. But trying to get that is oftentimes very, very difficult. Yeah. So It can be frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Um, so you have different ways that you can do a fundoscopic exam. You have the direct fundoscopy using the handheld ophthalmoscope. You can use a slit lamp which is a fancier machine that you've probably seen at all of the optometrist's office and and various departments um, in all the emergency rooms I've ever worked in. We've always had one. Um, But, of course, the issues with that is portability. You can't exactly take a slit lamp around everywhere that you go. And storage and upkeep in terms of where do you put these big machines, who's responsible for maintaining their um, functionality, making sure they're working properly. So there's a lot of issues that go in with both of these. And then enter the smartphone ophthalmoscopy. So what the market for this is, is you buy a special lens that attaches to your smartphone so that it's actually going through the camera. And these are around $300. Um, Slit lamps can cost anywhere from 20 to 50 grand and ophthalmoscopes, the handheld ones are around 300. And if you wanna go up to some of the Panoptic or bigger ones, you're talking into the two, $3,000 range. The phone is then placed in the video capture mode with the continuous flash so that you have the, the light, and then you're able to capture those videos and then save them as image stills so that you can see what you're looking at, which is, which is really, really helpful. Now, there were two big studies that the authors referenced in this particular article. One was the smartphone ophthalmoscopy reliability trial, or the SORT trial, and the fundus photography versus ophthalmoscopy trials outcomes in the emergency department or the photo ED trial. Both of these looked at about 15 to 30 minutes of training. Unfortunately, PAs were not involved in any of these. These were medical students, residents, physicians, and nurse practitioners, but they got 15 to 30 minutes of training. And then they took pictures of the pathologies uh, with the um, smartphone cameras and were sent to neuro-ophthalmologists to compare them to other high-quality slit-lamp images, and they were graded as equal or greater than the slit-lamp images that were procured. I mean, great. Yeah, and 77% of the trainees were more accurate with the photographs than live ophthalmoscopy. So when when you know what you're looking for and... It's hard to get that image. It may be difficult to diagnose. But if you can get the image, the majority of them, three-quarters of them, felt very, very comfortable in making the diagnosis if they had the image in front of them. So this is able to record them as a video and then save the stills to be able to look a little bit more closely on is there any pathology. Now, obviously, potential issues that are with this is everybody's got a different smartphone, I'll, although you know we have discussed on many occasions um, my love for a particular <laughs> type of device <laughs> um, and the technology always changes, so you don't know what, your, uh, what is needed in order to be able to get the right images. Right now, it's only available on the iOS platform, so Android users um, are, are a bit out of luck, but the, hopefully that's going to come around so that it can be used on multiple different platforms. But I think this really opens the door for a different level of training and doing those old bedside uh, uh, you know, fundoscopic exams with the handheld ophthalmoscopes maybe going by the wayside.
1: Right. It's okay. Like when we know better, we should do better.
0: Yeah. Right. Like
1: I know it feels like you want to hold it in your hand, but so many of us just feel that same frustration that you, that you described. Right. And now we have these magic devices.
0: Yeah. And and I think that that's one of the things that a lot of people push back with uh, utilizing more ultrasound is that it's, Mm -hmm. it's user dependent. You're only as good as, who's operating the probe to get the images that you need. But most people feel very comfortable with the images once they get them to see the pathology that's going on. So there is a little, there's a, there's a degree of training, but why make it harder than it needs to be?
1: Who doesn't want a minute to sit down and like collect your thoughts instead of having to, yeah, of course. I love it. I love it. Thank Mm -hmm. you for writing this article, you guys. <clears throat> we're going to round out by another thank you. Thank you for PAs doing primary research. And this is brought to us by some heavy hitters in the research department. So this is physician assistance in urgent care. And it's by Tammy Ritzema, uh, officially Tamara Ritzema here as an official author, uh, James Colley, and Noel Smith. And so uh, Tamara Ritzema and James Colley are at George Washington University. I feel like you've probably heard their names before. And Noelle Smith is a senior director at AAPA. So some really lovely research here. The authors wanted to have a better understanding of PAs who work in the really growing field of urgent care. And there hasn't been much, if any, research into this topic so far. So this is kind of just a starting point. And they did it because urgent care has been growing steadily. It's up 136 percent from 2014 to 2016, so really growing. Insurance reimbursement tends to favor visits to urgent care, like say instead of to the emergency department, and PAs make about half, if not third, of what physicians make. And because of our really well-rounded training, we can see and handle most of the patients that come into urgent care. And so this is a really kind of viable And it makes a financial model for PAs to be working in primary care. And so it turns out that PAs, because of our really well-rounded kind of background and training, apparently 88% of PAs that were surveyed in the survey we're going to talk about said that their collaborating physician only saw... The PA's patients, if asked to, in urgent care, compared to 59.4% in emergency med and 50.8% in all other specialties. So PA's out there handling stuff in urgent care, really, and, and making money for those urgent care facilities. All of this leads to urgent care being the fastest growing setting for PAs and physicians right now. So really blowing up. So the authors were like, we need to know more. They analyze retrospective survey data. They use the AAPA annual survey information from 1998 to 2016. But there is a limitation with that. So here it is. It turns out that only 14,609 PAs out of the 89,228 who were sent the survey responded. That's only 16.4% of respondents. So this information is from a 14,000 and a half PA's, but it could have been from almost 90,000 PA's. So it's really it's not everyone's voice. So I'm going to just put in my own two cents here one, be a member of AAPA, and I'm going to be totally honest, at times when I was a new PA or when financial times were tight, I couldn't always make the argument to join AAPA. But the more I looked into it, there are a ton of benefits now that I I wasn't really utilizing. So be a member. And then do the survey and do it honestly, please, because we're stronger together. And when we have all our voices in the survey, we can really get a representative picture than than what we have now. All that said, the authors think that getting back to the article, the data that they have is representative of the larger PA community and they don't think there are any huge problems with it. But surveys are just a collection of answers where anyone can put whatever they want, so there's inherently bias in that. We hope people are being honest, but it's not perfect. But the authors do think that with the 14,609 PAs, they have a a pretty reliable picture of what's going on here. The article has a ton more detail, but I'm gonna summarize what they found out here. Most PAs in urgent care, emergency, or other are women, but men are more likely to work in emergency medicine than urgent care, and more likely to work in urgent care than any other specialties. Still, 64.5% of the respondents who work in urgent care were female, 35.5% were male. 56% of the PAs who responded in emergency medicine were female, and 46% were male. And 70.6% in all other specialties were female, and 29.4% were male. So that's the breakdown of male to female, working in those subspecialties. And then what is the kind of work they're doing? In urgent care, PAs work longer shifts, see more patients, and do more procedures, but are paid less than in emergency medicine. And at first that sounds super unfair, but then remember that it's most likely that the patients are less acute in urgent care than they are in emergency medicine. If the patient was that sick, they'd be sent out to the ED. So what are they getting paid? In these surveys, emergency med PAs made $106,877 on average. In urgent care, $100,804. And then in all other specialties on average, $99,194. So emergency medicine PAs are the best compensated non-surgical PAs. A little reminder that they don't say in the article, but I'm going to put out there for you because I'm your co host giving you this article is that female PAs, no matter what specialty they're in and no matter what side things they have going on, how much time they've taken off, in general, just for being female, they make 10 to 13,000 less than male PAs, even though, as you just heard, there are more female PAs in most places, in all places where PAs are working, than male. Okay, so keep that in mind if you're negotiating. Now, In contrast, the average physician in emergency medicine made $322,000 in 2016, so you see that PAs being there save whoever's writing those checks out a ton of money. New grads, so less than five years, were more likely to work in emergency medicine than in urgent care, which is something a little bit contrary, the authors point out, to the anecdotal feeling that EMET is hard to get into for new grads. However, EMED PAs were more likely to have done a residency than the urgent care PAs, even though there aren't a ton of slots for EMED residency programs in the PA world. So that's something that might be evolving. But it turns out new grads are working in EMED and more so in EMED than in urgent care. And I wonder, um, Chris, if it's because as we see the PAs in urgent care um, have less consultation with their collaborating physicians, maybe a new grad, uh, maybe it's better for them to have more contact with their collaborating physician.
0: Uh, I mean, I think I think the reason why it gets into it is most of the my experience, my experience, mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. been that the PAs in the emergency room are often sent off in an island. Um, you're mm-hmm. kind of either over in the fast track pod, or um, you know, you're working alongside your physician, seeing the patients. But for the most part, you're kind of doing your own thing, and the physicians that you're working with need to have a certain level of trust in your decision-making process. And if you're a new graduate and you're constantly running things by them, then it doesn't really help their productivity and flow. So most emergency rooms don't want to incur that with new graduates. Whereas in urgent cares, you always have a safety net because when in doubt, you can always ship them to the emergency room. And so if you're concerned about your patient rather than bouncing off your supervising physician you can just make the decision to say you know what i think you need to go to the er and then that way you're more likely to stay within your comfort zone of the conditions that you see and thereby not decreasing the productivity of your supervising physician by bouncing ideas off of them so that's again that's my end of one.
1: Oh, that's a different take okay yeah. No, well, either either way, we don't know why, and we don't know the nuances. The survey doesn't tell us that much. We just know where and a little bit more, which is why we have to do this research so that we can build on it later. So it's mm-hmm. a great start. Okay, a couple of different theories. So in summary, urgent care is growing rapidly, and along with it, the number of PAs who work in urgent care recently doubled, Uh, according to AAPA survey respondents. And so it gives us this baseline snapshot of what the field up to 2016 looks like, but more research, as always, is needed.
0: As always.
1: Yeah, and as always, (laughs) we're going to wrap this up. Sound and sound engineering is done by Chris Madej. Mm -hmm. If you haven't subscribed, here comes that part I told you was coming to our feed on iTunes. And now Stitcher 2, what's up? Give us a rating, please. And we want to thank at DJ Bunnell, who tweeted at us, hey, when are you guys going to get on Stitcher? And we were like, you know what? Like today, we're going to get right on that. Thank you for bringing it up. And um, I talked to, we talked to your guy, Chris Madey right here, and Harrison Reed. And within a week, we were on Stitcher. And, and here we are. So thank you, at DJ Bunnell. And look, you ask, we listen. Mm-hmm. Get in touch. We want to make you happy. Thanks for engaging. DJ Benell, and glad to know you're out there fighting the good fight. So, if you want stuff to get done, tweet at us. Chris is at PA underscore midday. I'm at the art of EBM, all, all the letters together. JAPA is at JAPA.com And, as always, thank you to the support of Harrison Reed. You can tweet at him at Harrison Reed PA.
0: That's right. So, we'll see you back in the next month. See you then. Bye.
1: Bye.